And uh, if you've got a Bible, you may want to turn to the book of Mark and chapter 3. Yeah. yeah, my title isn't... I came up with the title before I came up with the message, so it's <laughs> it doesn't fit that well. <laughs> it kind of fits. <laughs> I'll make it fit. <laughs> okay. Well, we've been looking at Mark's Gospel for a few, uh, a few months really now, as I've been preaching on Sunday mornings. And uh, we've seen that the first part of Mark's gospel, especially the main question that is being asked is, who is Jesus? Um, Hence the title, who is Jesus up there? Um, Is he mad, bad, or God? This is going to continue to be a question that is going to be asked throughout this passage that we're looking at today, starting in Mark 3 and verse 20. We're going to encounter his family in this passage, Jesus' family, who actually think he's lost his mind. They think he's gone crazy. He's mad. Um, And we're going to encounter the teachers of the law again, uh, who who now think he comes from the devil. Um, In other words, that he's evil. He's bad. Um, And, and, you know, what are we going to think about that? Are we thinking he's mad? Are we thinking he's bad? Or do we believe he is God? I told you I'd fit the title in. Um, We're going to see how Jesus' ways and how his teachings are are very different to what we would consider to be normal. Actually, I believe that we're probably going to feel some of the tension ourselves in what what Jesus is saying in these passages. As, As we wrestle with what he says, as we continue, he continues to teach and build and explain what his upside down kingdom is like. And if we truly understand what Jesus is saying, we're actually likely to feel that tension or even offense ourselves. Um, so that should have uh, set you up. We're going to get offended this morning. We might well do. <laughs> Hopefully it's Jesus who offends you and not just me. Um, <laughs> Let's read from verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house. Hang on, I can flick onto this. There we go. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without tying him up first. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him in, to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, oh, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. All right. So Jesus in this passage, 
he kind of seems to be going out of his way to, uh, to offend people. <laughs> he seems to be going out of his way to offend people. It, it's interesting to see what different people get offended by. Actually, people are most likely to be offended by what they consider to be their strengths. People get offended by what they think they're pretty good at, they're pretty strong at, and if someone challenges that, as Jesus is challenging some of these things, that's when offense can come. So if you uh, decide you're going to come and bring a little helpful feedback to those of us who preach, um, we might get a little tense after because we, we think, oh, what are you telling us? That? So that, that's just one thing. We, we'd likely to get more defensive because it's an area that we uh, maybe feel ourselves that we're stronger in, even if we're not. Um, if you tell a musician that they weren't so sharp today, um, they probably won't receive it too well. They did a great job this morning. But if, if you ever say that to a musician, sometimes it gets a little tetchy. If you imply that a parent isn't handling bringing up their kids in the best way, they're likely to throw something at you. So <laughs> people get offended by the areas that they feel they're strong in. The things that we're good at are where we're actually most likely to trip up. Uh, when it comes to seeing what Jesus is saying about them. So here, Jesus is speaking about not letting family dictate your life. We'll see a little bit more about that in a moment. And he's also moving in the power of the Spirit. And it's pretty certain that his family and the teachers of the law are going to be offended by what he said in this passage. And as we look at it, if we feel we've got a strong family unit Actually, we're the ones who are most likely to get offended by what Jesus is saying about family. And, uh, it, you know, and teachers of the law, people who teach, often get offended by what Jesus is teaching and doing in the power of the Spirit. Um, the religious leaders here, Jesus is coming onto their turf. He's coming into their area of expertise, and he's actually doing things that they've got no grid for. They've got no grid for it. So they don't know how to handle what Jesus is saying and doing, and so... Jesus becomes an obsession for them out of their offense. They're, they're trying to find a way to get rid of him. They're, trying, they're in league, we've already seen, with the Romans to try and kill him. It's an extreme reaction. They're really super offended by what Jesus is saying and doing. And across the ages, actually, those who've been the most offended by the work of the Holy Spirit have been religious leaders, have been church leaders or other leaders, because that's just what's happened. So before we begin, there's a little warning here for us, because actually, if we allow our offense at what Jesus is saying to take over, it can stop us hearing what he is saying, um, and, uh, and we don't want that to happen. So I'm just going to pray that we can hear God in this, because there's always dangers when we, when we hit some of these difficult areas. And I'm very aware in what I'm preaching, I want to try and preach what is biblical and not just what is my opinion and forgive me if I stray into what is my opinion because sometimes it's hard to separate them out but I don't want to do that so let, let me pray before we go on Father God we want to hear from you this morning we thank you that you love us we thank you for all of the things that you've called us into you've brought us into your family you've brought, made us into your church together and God, we want to come before you tonight, this morning, and we want to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that where there's challenges that might touch on our lives and ourselves, Lord, we'd be able to overcome those 
uh, that potential offense and we'll be able to hear from you and respond to you. We don't want to operate out of any sense of guilt or shame. Lord, we want to operate in faith and respond in faith, but we do want to hear you on things, Lord, even if there are things that we need to adjust our hearts and our perspective on. We pray, speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Jesus is back in Capernaum, and the crowd is pressing in once again. This is a common thing. The crowds keep coming in because he's healing people, and he's delivering people from, from demonic influences. You know, people are getting set free, and so because God's at work, more and more people are coming, and Jesus is finding he and his disciples are so busy, it says they didn't even have time to eat the normal routines of day-to-day life. They're just getting disrupted. He doesn't even have time to take a bite to eat. You know, the people who are coming, they're oblivious to what his needs are and to what his disciples' needs are. That can easily be the case sometimes. People, if they're, um, if, if they're desperate for something, if they're in need, they, they, they're not really thinking outside of that. They're not thinking about the needs of Jesus and his disciples. But As we've seen, Jesus knows how to get away from the crowds. He knows that he needs to sometimes withdraw. We've seen him go up the mountain before now and and just have time with God and gather those close to him. But he also knows how to work hard. And uh, grace and hard work are not incompatible. The grace of God is not incompatible with hard work. Living in the grace of God doesn't mean we just say, oh, we're going to take it easy. Um, Jesus said, sorry, Paul said in 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me wasn't without effect. He's saying, grace has been working in my life. Well, what's it been working to do? I worked harder than all of them. He's talking about others. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He's saying the grace of God helped him, enabled him to work harder than everyone else. And we can sometimes think, oh, there's grace, it's okay. We don't need to bother about these things. Well, Paul's saying, no, the grace of God enables you to do the things that normally you wouldn't have actually been able to do. It enables him to work harder than others. And uh, for Jesus, it was the grace of God that enabled him to, to press through. And the disciples, the grace of God enabled them to press through and meet people's needs, even though they're not even having time to eat at this point, whilst they know they can withdraw. Now, Jesus' family see what Jesus is doing, and they're just like, man, this is, this is just excessive. This is just too much. They, see, they don't relate to Jesus in the way that everyone else relates to him, because he's family to them. You know, they've, they've been with him since he was a little a baby, a little boy. And uh, their strength is their family. But they can't see outside of that framework. They're blind, actually, to who Jesus is. Other people are beginning to see something of who Jesus is. They're beginning to see the things that he's doing. But his family, they're looking at him and they're going, well, what's he, what's he playing at? What is he, why is he doing these things? Why is he spending all of his time? He's not even eating. He's not, he's not having time to do anything. He's going to get burnt out. Who knows what they thought. It may have been that he was causing a great embarrassment or shame to their family. 
just by what he was doing. You know, people would have been talking about him and they would have been like, oh my word, what's he been up to now? What's he doing? And they're hearing all these reports coming back of what he's been doing and the things he's been saying. So it gets to the point where it says they decide that they, they're going to go to take charge of him. <laughs> to say, right, okay, you need to do what we tell you to do right now. We're going to take charge of you. It kind of seems a little ridiculous that Jesus at 30 years old, you know, that his mom's going to come and tell him that it's time to go home. <laughs> come on home, son. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but in Jesus' society, parents had a huge influence even when you were an adult. You know, the whole family structure was such that it meant if your, if your mom said something to you, you're going to listen. Actually, that's still the case in many areas of the world today. Uh, parents, especially um, there's matriarchy in, in a number of countries around the world, and obviously fathers as well, have a big influence. Jesus', Jesus uh, father, Joseph, his adopted father, Joseph, probably was dead at this point. He just talks about his mother and brothers. But a huge influence that the family unit can have and they're certainly thinking they can go and take charge of him. And uh, I guess it's, it's understandable. It's understandable why they think that way. They're looking at him and they're thinking it's extreme. And uh, those are people who are used to maybe um, all things in moderation, you know. And, and so it, religion, oh, it's fine to have a religious belief. It's fine to have a faith. It's fine to, but let's keep it in moderation. Let's keep it, let's keep it reasonable. We don't want to get extreme about anything. We don't want you to just be too radical. It's all a bit scary. And, and so the thought of radical commitment, which Jesus is actually demanding, and he continues to demand, is, is going to freak people out. The other week I was saying how when I became a Christian, people who I knew got very concerned that I'd joined a cult or that I'd just become too extreme. People said it was a phase that I was going through. And so I had a lot of negative comeback because it was like, oh, you, you were always kind of interested in those sort of things, but now you seem to have just taken it to a new level and it's become too much. It's become too much. People who follow Jesus actually get accused of all sorts of things, that they're extreme. So Paul was accused in Acts 26. He's accounting, he's recounting how he once was persecuting um, Christians and persecuting believers, but how he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he's telling this whole story to the Romans. And Festus, in Acts 26, verse 24, he stops and he interrupts and he says, you're out of your mind. He says, you're mad. Paul gets accused of being out of his mind too. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples, they pour out onto the streets. They're worshipping God. They're speaking in all sorts of different languages. The Holy Spirit has descended on them and people look at them and say, they've got to be drunk. They must be drunk. It's just extreme. It's too much. It's not respectable. It's not how things should be done. David's zeal for God made him worship in a way that his wife considered embarrassing. He was dancing and celebrating before God and he was the king. He should have been respectful. He should have been, he should have been dignified. 
and he's dancing away too much. And he's, the, the implication is, um, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say this. The implication is he's kind of, his clothing's flying up and he's not probably wearing any, any underwear. And so his wife's like, oh my word, what is he doing? Now, I wouldn't, I'm not recommending it. But, but, but David says, I'll celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more undignified than this. Because his wife's saying that's so undignified. I'll become even more undignified than this. And I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held. His wife's saying, what are the slave girls going to be thinking of you? And, you know, uh, he's saying, it doesn't matter. I'm worshiping God. I'm celebrating before God. So people often don't have a grid when it comes to what they see as passionate devotion or excessive devotion to God. But if we're truly radical, if we're truly following Jesus, we should expect people to accuse us of things like that. We should be concerned when people aren't thinking that we're excessive because maybe that means our zeal and our passion for God is dulled or is dying. I mean... I often ask the question to myself, you know, as we're worshiping in the morning, if people walked in, would they see a passionate devotion to God? Would they think, oh, that's a bit much? Are we in danger of that? Or would they just be like, oh, yeah, okay, this is kind of normal church life? Because I would expect, now, we don't want to put people off, but I would expect that we'd want to see something that is passionate and that is radical. Now, I'm, I'm not saying it's not, but I'm just saying that's a question that... It's good to ask, you know, could people accuse us of being extreme? Could people accuse us of being over the top? Because that's how Jesus' family accused him. So, how does Jesus respond when his family come to get him? So, we're going to flip to the end of the passage here. It's kind of sandwiched, uh, a sandwich in, in this passage. So, we go to the end and see when they arrive. And when Jesus' family arrive, we see that instead of deferring to them, as it would be expected, instead of saying, oh, okay, yeah, I'll come and speak to you and I'll maybe come back with you because I'm respecting and honoring what my parents, are, my, my family are going to say. He doesn't do that. He looks around at those people who he's teaching because someone said, oh, your, your mother and brothers are outside waiting for you. And he says, well, who are my mother and brothers? Who are my mother and brothers? That, I mean, that's... And then he says... You, who are following the will of God, you're my mother and my brothers. You're my family. We can't overstate this too much. This would have been shocking. This would have been shocking in Jesus' Middle Eastern society and her, his culture because your identity is very much bound up in your family group. Your family was pretty much your life. I mean, that was how you were known. So many people uh, are known by, their, um, by who they were the son of. So you get people like uh, Barabbas. Barabbas means son of Abbas. So even their names are tied in with who their family are and who their parents are. And it's all about what clan you belong to or what tribe you belong to. So very important. And Jesus is pretty much saying, I don't even know who, well, he does know. He's saying, are these my family? You're my family. It could have sounded as though Jesus was almost disowning his family. It would have sounded as though he was rejecting them. Now, it's important to be clear. Jesus did honor his family. 
he did honor his family because obviously the Bible teaches that we honor our families and that we honor and respect our parents. And he does. And at the cross, when he was dying, he calls John over and he says to John, look after my mother. He says, she's, she's like your mother now. And they may, they may have been related, who knows, distantly. But Jesus is caring for his mother and he teaches and others teach in the New Testament about how those people who say, oh, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to look after the needs of my family anymore because now I'm giving myself to the church. And if, he, if they ignore their family and they don't look after them financially and make sure they're provided for, there's very strong words in the Bible, in the New Testament, about people who do that. So Jesus isn't dishonoring his family and he's not disowning them or rejecting them and he doesn't want us to do that either. Um, But what he is saying is my family do not have a special hold on me. They don't tell me what to do. They don't have a hold on me. They have no authority over me. And that was the difference. You see it again in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. Do you remember the wedding that they're at right at the start of Jesus' ministry? The wine runs out. Jesus is there with his disciples. He's also there with his mother. And his mother says, oh, Jesus, they've run out of wine. So his mom's like pretty much saying, come on, son, you can do something about this. And Jesus' response is pretty strong. He says this. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Now, he's been particularly grumpy that day. <laughs> this is his mom. Woman, why do you involve me? So he's not happy about it. He's not happy about it. Now, he, yes, he goes ahead and he turns the water into wine and he calls the servants over and his mom's like, going, do what he tells you. <laughs> he wants to make it very clear that he's not doing something because his mom's telling him to. It's not his mom's place to tell him what to do. He's doing things because God has told him to. His authority comes from his heavenly father, not from his earthly family. And we need to see that this gospel of Christ cuts across family. Because strong families, families that are well-knit together, very close, actually they can hinder us in following the will of God in our life, if we're not careful. Areas that we think are our strength, this is where I said this is where offense can come, we can think, oh, we've got a really great family, we've got a really strong, close-knit family, we do everything together, we're all... And actually, that can hinder us in following the will of God in our lives. It may be because of expectations, of family, it might be because of pressure. It could also be just that we default to what's normal in our society today as well and put too much time and focus that way. And so maybe in Jesus' time it was parents and uh, older family, people who you default defer to and give respect to. Today maybe it's actually children. Maybe children have more influence and more say and it's like oh well we can't disappoint little Johnny on this or little uh, Jane on this and they've we've got to make sure that they they get to everything that they want to do and there's a party on or this and that and so we're constantly doing things around them instead of actually saying okay God what is it that you are wanting from us now of course God's kingdom 
does strengthen our families. If we bring our children up to love God and to worship him, if we model uh, on Sundays and throughout the week uh, what it is to love God, actually, in following Jesus, we are strengthening our families. We are bringing our families closer together and uniting them. But sometimes that will mean making decisions that our families don't like. It might making decisions that your kids don't particularly like or don't even understand. It might mean making decisions that your parents don't like or understand, but that we know God desires. Very early on in our marriage, and, and that, can be a, that can be a tension. And so it was for us very early on in our marriage, before I was ever a, a leader or a pastor in the church, we had to make a decision as to what to do on Christmas Day. And this wasn't just a one, this was like a, a battle over years, really. Um, what do we do on Christmas Day? Because our church spent Christmas Day morning, at least, together. Um, that was kind of what we, what we did. And uh, so do we go and spend the time with the church, or do we go and travel to be with our family on Christmas Day? Um, but our family didn't follow Jesus, but they had expectations that we'd be with them. So we, we were wrestling with this, and in, a, in all of these examples I give, by the way, there's no right or wrong. This is for you to decide for yourself, okay? I'm not saying the decision I make is the decision you should make. But we felt it was an important decision to make early on in our marriage, and we chose we're going to spend Christmas morning with our church, and we're going to go and see our family the rest of the vacation time. Didn't go down well. <laughs> it really didn't go down well with our family. They was like, well, what's that about? And, you know, later on, when I became a pastor of the church, they, they kind of felt they understood it better because they were going, oh, yeah, well, of course, it's your job. But it's, well, no, it, well, we were wanting to do that before it was ever my job. We had to make a choice then as well. But for us, it was an important decision that we had to make in setting out who takes priority. Yes, we want to love and honor our family. Yes, we don't. we're not going out of our way to offend them needlessly. Um, but we want to honor God first, and we felt that was important. You know? Family weren't overly thrilled when we said we're going to move across the Atlantic to come and live in Canada because they're not going to see us too much. But we had to set our mind and our decisions and our heart to things, who are we going to follow first? So there's all sorts of decisions that we might have to make in our lives. At this point, I'm a <laughs> this, is, this is probably something that you might want to chat about in life groups because this, I don't know how, of, how commonly heard this is here. Often, they're said, and I've heard it said in churches a number of times, there's kind of a hierarchy about how to work out priorities in your life, and it goes like this. People say, you put God first, and you put family second, and you put church third. How many people have heard that said in some ways? Seven of you. So, <laughs> <laughs> there's others, but they're just like, yeah. <laughs> That's, that, I've heard that said quite a lot. People, oh, you put God first, and you put family second, and you put church third. I kind of get it. I get why people say it. I understand that. But I don't actually think it's a particularly biblical way of looking at it. Partly because I don't see that the Bible teaches that. The Bible doesn't actually teach a hierarchy of things. 
And for a start, people can tend to interpret it as, oh, well, I'm going to spend 10 minutes in the morning reading my Bible and praying. Then the rest of my time uh, on family, and whether that's working to earn money or doing leisure things together or sports or vacations or whatever, and then any more time or money that we might have left can go to the church after we've, after we've done all the family stuff. But I don't think the Bible teaches that. You can't really imagine... Um, Jesus calling Andrew and Simon and James and John as they're fishing with their family business, certainly James and John, and saying, come and follow me. And them saying, oh, we'd love to, but we've got to prioritize our family. You know, it's God first, then family. But, oh, it's family business. We're going to be letting them down. So sorry, Jesus, we can't follow you. They're not saying that. It's better not to look even at things as a hierarchy, but to say God is at the center of all we do. When we come into God's family, he becomes the center of everything. And everything, our whole life gets worked out with God at the center, whether that's church or family or work. And, we, and often they intermingle. We don't even have to compartmentalize them all because it's just part of life. But what Jesus is saying here is, if we're followers of Jesus, nothing and no one should come between us and God. We need to understand God loves our family. But the call of God on our life takes precedence over everything else, whether that's pressure from parents or our kids or our partner or anyone. And this is something that we'll either just kind of dismiss or ignore or we'll wrestle with. And it's something that we, when we wrestle with it, we have to wrestle with it on any number of different occasions and any number of different decisions. But Jesus wasn't vague about it. So I do encourage us to wrestle with it because Jesus wasn't vague. He said some pretty stark things. Um, he said, For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I'm just going to leave those words up. Like, that's hard teaching from Jesus. That is not kind of, oh, yeah. It's like, well, what are you saying, Jesus? There's going to be opposition. There's going to be conflict between families here. It's almost going to be like they're enemies. Man's enemies will be members of his own household. And then, Yes, we're to love our father or mother. Yes, we're to love our son or daughter. But if, you, if we love them more than we love God, Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. Whew. That is hard. That is hard to figure out. And I think we've, we've got to wrestle with it. We've got to wrestle with it as to what it means. What does it mean personally for us? Because if we don't wrestle with it, we'll just go, oh, I don't like that. And we'll dismiss it, but Jesus has said it. So we need, we need to try and figure it out. Jesus is really saying, I'm at the center of your life. I'm involved in everything. Don't allow your family, your nuclear family, especially if they're not followers of me, to stop you and prevent you from doing all that I'm doing in you. Someone once said that the main reason young people don't get involved more in overseas mission or church planting 
is the reason that they give, even though they feel God's calling them to something, but then they don't go. Those who don't go, they say the reason primarily that they don't go is because their Christian parents don't want them to. Often their Christian parents can have different ideas for them. Oh, I thought you were gonna, I thought you were gonna get a, a, a degree and go on and be a, a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, and it may well be that they're a doctor or a lawyer and go out overseas. There's nothing wrong with those things and go to different places. But whatever it is, it can be family pressure and family expectations which stop you. I've certainly known someone, a number of people, but one person especially comes to mind, um, who really felt a call to sacrificially give herself to a local community and bring the gospel to them. But their family put so much pressure on them to get a degree and to study and to go and work as a lawyer um, that they ended up, in, in the end, they gave in to that pressure. But it was relentless, the pressure that was coming from this family. But they felt a call on God in other ways. So Jesus is saying, I've brought you in to a church family. These are my brothers and sisters. These are my mothers and fathers. And Jesus is saying, in many ways, they take precedence, they take priority over birth family. Because that's what he was saying, really. He's saying, well, who... Who takes priority? Because Jesus is being told, stop what you're doing and go home. Jesus is saying, no, these are my family. He's really saying, you take priority over my family. That's quite a challenge. That's quite a challenge. These people who do the will of God are my family. God's brought us into his church. We now have new mothers, new fathers, new brothers, new sisters and, and we, we find it hard to see people in that way. We do find it hard to see people in that way. We can easily see the church as just people we sit next to on a Sunday who we worship together with. We hear the message. But church is far more than that. Church is far more than that. And I do believe that it's a real mind shift for people, for all of us in the church. And it, we, have to, we have to wrestle with it. We have to get hold of it. I believe we... Many of us haven't understood it yet. Many of us haven't understood it. Um, at a previous church I was at, we did a whole series, uh, preaching series, on church as family. And as we came to the end of it, it was coming up towards Christmas. And, uh, and so I suggested, well, maybe we organize some get-togethers over the Christmas period. Uh, maybe for those who want to worship on Christmas Day. And I, I understood culturally it's not the same as it is in the UK, but I said, look, those who want to worship on Christmas Day, maybe we could do that, uh, and, and you know, I'm happy to organize something, and then maybe we'll get together at different points over the week between Christmas and New Year with people from the church, and, and I was told, oh, we don't do anything uh, with church over Christmas. Christmas is a time for family, and I was like, well, we've just been preaching about church being family, so what do you mean Christmas is a time for family? What are we saying? I, what we're doing is actually different to what we're teaching. And it, and it can be easy to default. And I don't say that to criticize the person who said it because it's just, we can teach something, but we don't really get it. We don't really live it. We don't understand. Well, what does that mean? What implications does that have for my life? What does it, implications does it have for how I relate to others in the church? What implications does it have for how much time I spend with people? Not, not in formal meetings, but just in relationship with people. It's great to hear um, Julia uh, say this morning how the church body came and supported and loved them and helped them. 
And that's part of what church is about. It's not about a meeting on a Sunday specifically. We're not too bad at gathering a crowd uh, of people on a Sunday, but not necessarily everyone is engaged in other ways. But it's great to hear. It does happen. It is happening. But I think it's something that we keep needing to tell ourselves and keep needing to actually live it. So for example, last week we held our All Together meeting and our AGM, and we were setting out everything that God has done in the last year and going into the coming year as a church family. And probably, I would say, that meeting each year is, that gathering each year is probably our key time together to really set out what God's calling us to in the future. We've got to look at all sorts of different things. Okay, what are we believing for God financially? And it was actually a great time. Luke led us in worship. It was fantastic. We heard a lot of different things. But actually, there were only 40 of us there out of about 220 adults who regularly come on a Sunday morning. Now, I don't say that to make you feel bad if you didn't come. And there was lots of people who might not have come for lots of different reasons, and that's fine. But if you just take the figures of 40 out of 220, that would indicate some people, a number of us would have maybe gone, eh, I'm not so sure this is a priority to come together as a church family. So hear me right, I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, we have to come to everything. We easily get into legalism and laws, but what we're saying is what happens can demonstrate what's actually going on in our hearts. And we want God to change our hearts. When God changes our hearts, that affects what we do. And we start to see things in a different way. So if there's a big uh, family gathering arranged, generally in a family, we'll probably make every effort to be there. So do we do that with the church? Do we see the church as a family? If a member of our family gets married, even if they're a bit of a distant relative, we don't know them that well, we might make the effort to go to the wedding would we make the effort to go to a wedding of someone in our church family, even if we didn't know them that well? Um, it's thinking about things as different ways. Church is family. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? How do we relate to that? How do we act together? These are the questions that we should ask. So again, not setting rules, not legalism, just saying, God, will you change our hearts? Because Jesus said it was this area which would show the world what being his disciple was about. He said, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So our love for one another, and what, and what we heard about this morning from Julia, was an example that you don't see so much in the world. The world are going to say, this is different. This is different. There's a love for one another. There's a care for one another. The more they see that, the more radical that is, they'll go, wow, this is totally different. This is totally different. You must be disciples of Jesus. And people who get these things are those who've been rejected by family because they've embraced the gospel. Some people, they've, they've given up everything. Like if you convert from Islam to Christianity, you'll be rejected by your family. And people need another family to replace that. So what do we say? Oh, yeah, we can meet on Sunday mornings and then Wednesday evenings for a couple of hours. They're like, no, we want family. We need something more than that. I believe our church family in, from Africa can teach us so much more in this sort of area as well, if we want them to. So 
Are we open to God changing us in this area of our lives? Or is it a no-go area for Jesus? As I said, if we're strong in this area, the teaching is in family, if we feel we've got a strong family, that's when we're likely to be offended, as it did Jesus' family. Jesus' kingdom is radical. Okay, I'm going to have to go through this last bit super quick. So that was the main thing, really. Jesus' family opposed him. Teachers of the law also opposed him because wherever Jesus went, demonic things were happening. It was a a normal part of Jesus' ministry. Demons had been untroubled for generations, but now this power clash is going on. Jesus is preaching about grace and faith and life and power, and the demons are not liking it. Things are happening. The teachers of the law are super offended, as I've said. They've got no grid for it. They don't know what's going on, so they just go arrogantly. They must be just like, well, it can't be of God. He must be in league with the devil himself. You know, it must, he must be demonic himself if he's doing these things. Uh, it's just the same weird things. It's, it doesn't make sense. Um, people do say things that don't make sense sometimes if they don't get a grid of what Jesus is doing. Um, and Jesus responds to them, even though he knows they're not that interested in his response. Um, and he says, look, it do, it's ridiculous. Um, he says, if you keep going this way, if you keep saying that the work of the Holy Spirit is from the devil... Then he he actually says that's the unforgivable sin. People get all hung up about what the unforgivable sin is. Unless you are, uh, you don't need to get hung up about it. If you if you hung up about it, you've not committed it. But if you, (laughs) I haven't got time to go into it. But just don't worry about it. Unless you're persistently saying the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit is of the devil, which I don't think you are, then that's good. Um, Then you're good. Jesus is saying, how can I be from Satan? That's ridiculous. Satan can't drive out Satan. He says, if if a kingdom's divided against itself, you get civil war. Everything falls about. If a household's divided, everything gets destroyed. Satan can't be against himself. But he starts to talk about a strong man. And he, he says, you can't go into a strong man's house and start taking the things in the house because the strong man's going to come and beat you up. Of course he is. If you go into someone's house and you've got this big guy there, you know, Gary Gallant or whatever, he's not big, big, but he's strong. Um, <laughs> you can't just go in his house and start taking things. He's going to stop you. The only way you can go and take things is if he's tied up and someone needs to tie him up and he's strong, so we can't go and tie him up. But, but someone has tied him, not Gary, someone has tied Satan up. And that person is Jesus. Jesus has bound the strong man. So this, this, the enemy, Satan, is still alive. He's there, tied up. He's shouting and screaming and accusing. He's very much alive, but he's bound. And he can't stop us. And we can go in and we can plunder his goods. And we can, we can do the things that Jesus was doing. And we can do them as well. Because Satan is bound. And he's tied up. And he has no power. Now, we couldn't do that, but Jesus did it. And so we can go and make disciples of people. You know, Satan is wanting to keep everyone in his bondage, but we can go and rescue them and plunder them and, and take them. And he can do nothing about it apart from shout lies and accusation. We don't listen to those lies because he's going to say things and he's going to try and deceive us and trick us. But we need to remember he is bound. He is tied up. We have the freedom to go in. Now, we don't get arrogant. If someone's bound up, 
You don't go right up to them and start saying things in their face and everything like that because they can <laughs> kick out at you. <laughs> and spit at you and do all, you know, all sorts of things. We need to have, just be wary of that. Jude talks about that. If you read the book of Jude, it's very short. Talks about don't get involved in some of these things. But we have freedom to go in and do that. Do you do, you do trolley dash? Not do you have a thing, the trolley dash thing over here where you get two minutes to go into a superstore and get as much as you can? And you get to keep it for free. That's kind of a thing in England. They, ha <laughs> they had a TV show where you, where you got that. You just said, okay, you've got two minutes. Go around this superstore and get as much as you can. All right, yeah. So if we, ha if we had that, if we could go to Superstore and they, uh, or Walmart and they said, you've got two minutes and you can, anything you can get, you can take. We'd be like, yeah, let's get in there. Let's get as much as we can. We're getting it all down. Trolley. You know, that's pretty much what Jesus has said we've got. We've got a time now where we can go and get whew, the strong man's tied up. No one's going to stop us. We can go out into the world and make disciples and win people for Christ. So let's be encouraged by that. Jesus has bound up the strong man. So as we finish, I told you that bit was going to be quicker. As we finish, let's go back to the question, who is Jesus? Because our answer to who Jesus is will affect how we respond to him. His family thought he was mad. They thought he was too extreme. Are we thinking his teachings too extreme today? Or are we going to embrace it? The teacher of the law thought he was bad in league with the devil. Do we have a tendency to be negative about the work of the Holy Spirit? Or do we see it as something that is wonderful and that brings life and brings freedom for us? Or do we see Jesus as the Son of God? Because if he is, we can give our lives completely over to him and we can trust him. Many people don't know Jesus. And some people think, oh yeah, Jesus is a good man. He was a good man. He had some good teachings. Jesus claimed to be the Christ. He claimed to be the Son of God. People making those sort of claims, if it's not true, they're mentally deranged. He's not a good man if he's saying those things if it's not true. He's someone we don't listen to. He's mad. He was saying some strong things. Or is he deceiving us? Is he out to deceive us like cult leaders? Like someone who's after our money? Is he just trying to manipulate? Is he evil? If he is, he can't be just a good man. That, that option isn't even open to us. He's either mad or he's bad or he's God. And if he's God, there's only really one response that we could have to him. And that is to embrace it and to come in and know more of him and follow more of his ways. Maybe you've never thought about it that starkly before. Maybe you've thought that going to church and believing in God was just a nice addition to your life. Maybe, like people in Jesus' day, you were shocked and offended even by what you heard today. It just seemed too extreme. But if he's God, we need to listen. And we need to try and respond to what he's calling us to as his church. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you 
I thank you, God, that you love us, and I thank you for all of the things which we've already celebrated today, that you've uh, forgiven us because of the blood of Jesus. You've brought us into your family. You've welcomed us in. We're your people. We can come forgiven, without shame, without guilt before you this morning. And God, we want as a church to hear your voice. Lord, I pray that nothing that I've said would distract from what you are saying to people. Lord, I pray if I've given examples which have been unhelpful, I pray don't let people dwell on those, take them from people's minds, but Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. And we recognize that what you say to us may well challenge things which are dear to us. May may well challenge things that actually we thought we were strong on and now you seem to be saying they're not strengths because they're preventing you from coming to me. And God, I pray you will work in our hearts together. Every one of us, myself included, we all have such blind spots. I pray open open our eyes to you, to what you're saying. We want to live in radical obedience to you, Lord. I pray we wouldn't lose that passion that comes from knowing you and being set free. And I pray where it's died and, and dwindled, you'd rekindle it, Lord, in each of our lives that we would be a people who live for you, a people who love each other, who know what it is to be part of your family. Oh God, who people would look at and say, they must be disciples of Jesus because of how they love one another. Will you do that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.